Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB. I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. Today we have an exciting conversation with Ryan Holiday, author of Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. This book, both of us were really excited about it because it focuses on Gawker, which for readers who don't know, was a very popular New York media and celebrity gossip site that was closed after they had a very complicated and salacious lawsuit filed by Hulk Hogan. There was a sex tape. We'll get into that in the interview, the specifics of it. But the story is just wild. Yes, it is wild. And Hulk Hogan, I think all the twists and turns with Hulk Hogan, to me, are some of the wildest parts. But I kind of thought that Peter Thiel was evil. And I still think maybe he is. But the book complicates things a little bit, to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. Even though I would say, you know, freedom of the press, that's... that's, Sacrosanct. Yes. but, But I mean, maybe it's not as clear as that after you read the book, but I still think it is. But it was a great thing to consider and think about and just inhale the whole story. Could not agree more. I think you're absolutely right that it's not necessarily going to change people's opinions about the kind of big picture ideas of that story, but it does give us a pretty incredible portrait of at least those two men. The Hulk Hogan stuff is very interesting, but the Peter Thiel versus Nick Denton, who was the editor-in-chief and publisher, I guess, of Gawker. Yeah. That is just really, really fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get right to that interview. Okay. We're excited to have Ryan Holiday with us in the studio today. Ryan is a critic and writer whose work tackles marketing, culture, and questions about the human condition. He's the author of Trust Me, I'm Lying, The (laughs) Obstacle is the Way, and Ego is the Enemy. He is also a strategist for a number of high-profile brands, including Google, Complex, and Taser, among others. His most recent book, Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue, was published in February by Penguin Portfolio. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So I and Kate, I know, is the same way. I love this story. I sweated Gawker so hard in the early aughts in ways that we'll get into later. But can you just review for us in as concise a way as possible what the wild story that actually connects Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, and Gawker? The first story is that Hulk Hogan is having a sexual relationship with his best friend's wife whose name is Bubba the Love Sponge, right? <laughs> that, this is the name of his best friend, a uh, radio DJ in Florida. They have this relationship, and he does not know that Bubba is secretly recording this encounter as mm-hmm. it's happening. That tape is subsequently stolen and leaked. It runs on Gawker.com, a gossip media site. And Hogan sues them for $100 million. This case winds its way through the court system, and eventually he wins. He wins a $140 million verdict in Pinellas County, Florida. Now, if that wasn't crazy enough, Mm -hmm. it turns out that in 2007, so five years previous to the tape even running, Gawker had outed the technology investor Peter Thiel, and he had nursed a grudge about this, and he'd stewed on it, and he'd thought about it, and for roughly five years, been planning and plotting a way to get even, and he'd used the running of the Hulk Hogan sex tape as his cat's paw to get at Gawker. So he had been secretly funding. He is the one that originates the lawsuit, 
pays the legal bills, funds it on Hogan's behalf, and it is revealed after the verdict comes out that he had been the mastermind behind this thing that everyone in the media had covered, and no one had scratched beneath the surface and seen what was really there. And how did you get involved in reporting the story? It sounds like you were contacted by Peter Thiel. So like you guys, I I was a sort of a Gawker, not fan, but Gawker observer, right? And I'd written about, I have a media column for the New York Observer. And so I'd written critically of Gawker many times. And my take on the original, the superficial story was, this is not as bad as people think it was. Their sort of actions have consequences. You can't run a sex tape, a surreptitiously recorded sex tape, and not think there's going to be some consequences to that. Mm-hmm. And so Teal had reached out to me after this happened, and he sent me an email. I said, I loved your story. I'd love to talk. Meet me in New York or L.A. at some point to discuss the MBTO. And that was his acronym <laughs> for Gawker, the Manhattan-based terrorist uh. organization. <laughs> so this is sort of my first peek behind the curtain. We ended up talking. I also happened to have known socially Nick Denton for, for some time, mm. who'd read some of my other books. And the book sort of came from the fact that I was probably the only person on the planet talking to these two mortal enemies about each other. And let me just ask, so with the sex tape, you say you can't run a sex tape that was surreptitiously recorded and not expect to get in trouble. Yeah. Is that the law? Well, in some cases, yes. I mean, look, if a celebrity is in a changing room at a boutique store and someone has recorded them while they're in there, does the public have a right to that? Does the public have a right to the Aaron Andrews footage? Right. So it's not like my question is, it was Bubba... Bubba the Love Sponge. Bubba the Love Sponge, who recorded Hulk Hogan. And you never really touch exactly on why that is in the book. Maybe it's irrelevant. But he was the one who recorded, who surreptitiously recorded. He made the initial crime. So, And then it's passed on to Gawker. It's Gawker who's at fault for playing it? No, no. So Bubba the Love Sponge is committing a separate, probably a criminal infraction in recording the tape for various reasons. He's not prosecuted, nor is the person who steals the tape and leaks it to Gawker, but the website itself is held responsible for the invasion of privacy and intentional infliction of emotional and physical distress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was ultimately what the issue is in the courtroom in Florida is, was this story newsworthy? Was it published with newsworthy intentions? Or was it simply attempting to exploit the private moment of this individual? So there is some debate over, you know, are you allowed to do it? Are you not allowed to do it? the six people in Florida that are deciding this company's fate are not necessarily thinking of the larger constitutional questions here. They're just like, we really don't like you people. Like, we don't like how you behave. So one of the mistakes there is that Cocker let this get in front of a jury and a jury in Florida. So there's all these complicated questions that the whole case arrived. I'm also interested, though, there seems to be... So the whole Kogan case was of a piece with what what I would want to say are like some serious editorial misjudgments that Gawker had had. So Mm -hmm. there's a big disjunction between the Gawker that when I was a young cub reporter at Condé Nast, we loved Gawker because Gawker was, and it's interesting because it was also about celebrity, but it was, you know, like they had the Gawker stalker and all that kind of stuff, which was also legally questionable. But they reported on media. I mean, that's how we found out that it's like, oh my God, so many people are going to be let go. And like when it was their Fairchild or Condé Nast Hearst, like that was, we loved reading that stuff. Sure so great. And in many ways, they were telling the stories that, as you say in the book, that nobody would tackle and they had sources that nobody else seemed to be able to cultivate. 
But then something seemed to shift, and I don't know quite when it was, but I remember being thoroughly disgusted in 2015 when Gawker made the decision to, and I won't say the name, but to out basically a CFO at Condé Nast that had, there was no reason to do that. And it was quite embarrassing. But but I mean, how is that different than them deciding to out Peter Thiel? Well, that's what I mean is I'm wondering if, was there a divergence where Gawker started to get into things that were not quite newsworthy, but rather just like mean-spirited in some ways. Well, I think there's a couple of things. The Gawker did have a sort of a general obsession with outing gay men, which is strange and somewhat ironic considering the, the founder, Nick Denton, is gay. The reporter actually writes the story that Outsteel yeah. is gay. They out Anderson Cooper, right. Tim Thanks, Cook. Right. Denton would say that he believed that it was out of a misplaced sense of decency. These are his words, that people didn't typically report on the sexuality of gay men. And I think there's a somewhat, that's a strange wording, certainly. But he was saying, why is this a big deal? By making it secret, you're implying there's something wrong with it. I think what he's missing is that it's not really his business. It's the business of the people whose business it is, right? But I think there is a... And he's outing them because it's salacious and it gets clicks. And it gets paid for it, right. Yeah, that's, you know. But there is a remarkable amount of similarities between that Condé Nast story you mentioned and the Hogan tape, which is that this sort of anonymous material Mm -hmm. arrives at Gawker, right? In the case of the Hogan sex tape, it's an envelope with a DVD in it. In the Condé Nast story, it's, you've got to hear this. And Gawker runs the story in both cases. What they really fail to do is question the motives of the person giving them the information. And so in the Hogan tape, what was so strange about it is that it was actually a rival of Bubba the Love Sponge attempting to both embarrass his boss and embarrass Hulk Hogan to then be able to sell the tapes back to them. Right. So it's using the media Mm. as a way to get leverage and sort of not dissimilar to what we're seeing now with Stormy Daniels and Donald Trump. Right. You have the affair that doesn't necessarily entitle you to a payoff from someone. Right. But if you know that you talking about it is bad for that person, they're going to pay you off. And so Gawker, by touching stories other people wouldn't touch, sort of made itself a target for people who had serious agendas that were trying to use the site to get at various people. And it was a site that pushed the boundaries. And in some ways, it was probably inevitable that at some point they'd go so way over the line. I'm curious about, I want to ask more about Gawker because I just find it endlessly interesting. But I want to just go back a little bit to Peter Thiel because Mm -hmm. he is such a large character. He looms large in this book. What would you say Peter Thiel and Nick Dedman are kind of, you know, they're the opposition to each other here, but they also seem to have a lot in common. Both entrepreneurs, they have a libertarian spirit. Is there more that you found that they had in common? And did you start to kind of empathize more with one or the other as you were reporting the story? You're totally right. They're very similar. They're both gay. They're both immigrants. They're both sort of obsessed with technology. They both relish saying the things that you're not supposed to say. Mm -hmm. Teal founds the Stanford Review when he's at Stanford, which is a sort of a hardcore conservative newspaper at Stanford that in some ways was kind of the gawker of that era, right? Politically, if you will. And so they're very similar And so in some ways, it's kind of this old Western thing of like the town's not big enough for the two of them. I found that they were both just incredibly unique, sort of singular individuals. They have these sort of almost competing visions for how the world should be. Peter's like a keeper of secrets and Denton is like a publisher of secrets. Mm. And this kind of puts them on that collision course. So I don't know. I don't necessarily side with one over the other. Personally, I found them both fascinating in a way 
Teal is much more closed off, much, I think, harder to get to know and, like, let's say, be friends with. Mm -hmm. Nick is more sort of social and gregarious, although still they're both a little socially awkward. But there's a reason that one gravitated towards the Silicon Valley and the other to the New York media set. And they were kind of both kings of these little fiefdoms. And then the two collided. And let me just ask, what repercussions for Peter Thiel did it have besides kind of emotional distress or any when he was outed by Gawker? What spurred this revenge case? Yeah, so I don't know what professional repercussions there actually were. There's some speculation that, you know, he does business in the Middle East. Is this a problem? He's a political power broker and the sort of on the conservative side. Is that a problem? I don't think that's really what the problem was. I would say First, it's it's easy to be dismissive of the idea that like, oh, okay, his feelings were hurt. Like, just because he's rich and successful doesn't mean that this might not be profoundly yeah. wounding and he might not be very upset by it. So I think it was the personal side of things. I think he really objected. He told me he objected not just to being outed, but the sort of speculation that there was something wrong with him, that he was weird, that he was not like other gay people for not wanting to be public about it. Does that make well, sense? Yeah, and so that's one of the things that is so fascinating to me about this story is that there's a way that you can see a subcurrent of this story is actually two – well, we shouldn't call them queens because I'm sure Teal wouldn't like that. But <laughs> it's like two gay guys that are battling with each other over effectively the politics of public sexuality. Yeah. I mean where – in which like Denton has clearly decided that Teal's more reserved like I don't want to be you know out there with a million rainbow flags yeah. and my boyfriend and all that. In a way not dissimilar from how – for different reasons, but how Anderson Cooper had nuanced his, you know, he was out to everybody that knew him. He never made any attempt to cover it up, but he wasn't publicly kind of that way. And Denton seemed to really take issue with that. I think for Teal, it was like, I don't want this to be the primary thing that I'm identified as. That it's like, of I'm all not the, a gay power broker. I'm just yeah, a power broker. Yeah, that it's like yeah. 10 on the list of things that define me. Yeah. Whereas I think Denton, Denton actually told me that he always felt sort of unfair. He said that he'd always been attracted to black men. And so his sexuality was more pronounced in the sense that it was more mm-hmm. public. Right. Like in the circles that he was in, that he had a harder time sort of blending in as a gay man in the circles that he operated. in. these are his words. I'm not sort of making this up. So but I think he was saying, like, I think for Denton, his gay identity has been more primary for him as a person. Okay. And so that might be the conflict is that one is saying this isn't important and the other is saying it's always had to be important for me, not by choice. Is that fair? And perhaps that's the source of some of the conflict, if that makes sense. Mm. So after he's outed, Peter Thiel begins to hatch this plan. And how extensive, I don't know how much reporting came out after the fact, but how extensive, just for listeners who don't know, was his plan? Well, what's so remarkable about it is that if that is the thing that incites him, how little actively happens until 2012. He's just sort of thinking about it. And this is, for people who know Teal, not that surprising. He's sort of this deep, plodding thinker. He doesn't want to be rushed. He always says it's better to be last than first, like to be the finisher rather than the beginner of something. And so he just kind of thinks, and he's this kind of guy, he has long dinner parties where he just talks about ideas. He's always looking to be sort of provoked and proven wrong. And so I think he just plans and thinks. And the overwhelming reaction is there's nothing you can do about this. This is all legal. Gawker is bulletproof. 
you don't go after a media outlet. It always ends badly. So he mm-hmm. hires a lawyer on retainer. Yes. And also a source that you can't. Yeah. Mr. I, a, why couldn't you um, name who it was? So Mr. A is the person who approaches Teal in 2011. And this is when it sort of concretizes into a conspiracy. My agreement with the source was that I wouldn't reveal his identity in exchange for him being willing to talk to me. So it's okay. not like a protection thing. It's, these were the terms of the So he's agreement. still not public anywhere. Correct. Okay. And so he doesn't really do anything in 2011. He hires Mr. A. Mr. A in turn hires Charles Harder, the attorney. And then they just begin looking for cases. And then Gawker makes probably the unforced error of its life when it runs the Hogan sex tape, and that's when all these separate characters are enjoined for the first time. You're listening to the LAR Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM. We've been speaking with Ryan Holiday, author of Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. On this Mother's Day week, I'm really excited to have my mother in the studio for a book recommendation. So I'm excited to welcome Heidi Newman, a.k.a. my mom. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Eric. I'm very excited to be here. So, Mom, what book are you recommending this week? Well, Eric, I'm recommending I Feel Bad About My Neck by Nora Ephron. Okay, so what's I Feel Bad About My Neck about? It is about getting older. And it really resonates with people that are over 60. Okay. (laughs) Present company excluded. Well, no, not so excluded. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about the title. I feel uncomfortable about my neck. Well, she doesn't feel uncomfortable about it. She feels bad about it. Oh, I feel and, bad about my neck. And That's it right. is something that any woman who is in 60 and over is going to know that all of a sudden this scarf is her best friend. <laughs> and in fact, Nora Ephron talks about scarves and the role that they play in her life. Okay, and is in terms of just presenting herself in public and not feeling old. That's right, where you cover that. And then you also wear only black And that is another thing that she talks about, that black has become now the new color. Okay, so you felt that this was very resonant for you? Yes, it did. Unfortunately, it did. Have you been wearing a lot of scarves? I don't feel that I've seen you wear scarves. Well, now I have been wearing scarves. So I lost some weight, and therefore the neck is something that I worry about a little (laughs) bit. And so I have taken out those scarves that you have given me over the years, over the decades, and I now wear them. Okay. Well, she also talks about things that I just did not know about, and that is something like rent control in New York City. New York City is certainly far away from Kentucky, but I've always heard about it from you, and I've heard about it from Mm. Marg. And she talks about the rent control and having to pay keys, which I had never known about. And she talks about how, as you get older, you've been in the same apartment and that you become committed to it. And that was a lifestyle that I had not really been aware of. All right. Well, that sounds great. Can you give us the title and author one more time? The title is I Feel Bad About My Neck, and the author is Nora Ephron. Thank you so much, Mom. You're welcome, Eric. Okay. So as part of a special segment for Mother's Day, we have my mom on the line with us calling from New York City. Dr. Elena Ocher, as she is referred to in our household. 
Mom, hi. Hi. Uh, <laughs> what book are you going to recommend today? Well, in the spirit of Mother's Day coming, you know, I would love to recommend Anna Karenina to everybody who are not introduced to Tolstoy, and I call them Tolstoy virgins. And I believe that Anna <laughs> Karenina is Anna Karenina is a universal story of uh, womanhood. Okay, when when did you first read Anna Karenina? How old were you? Oh my God, that was very early on my 14th, 15th, and it was very melodramatic. And the second time, I was 20 years old when I realized that I would love to see women in love and giving everything to love. Mm-hmm. And then in my 30s, when I understood that Anna was a very complex character and was probably very anti-hero for Tolstoy, who made her to have a fatal attraction. And in my 40s, when I understood there are two plots in the novel, mm-hmm. uh, Tolstoy called it Two Marriages. That was the first name of the novel. And he showed uh, three different stories in it. Anna with her husband, who was 20 years older than her, and Steve with her dolly, who was unfaithful to dolly, but she tolerated it. And Kitty and Ledin, you know, who had a happy love story to the end. So I believe it was uh, Tolstoy who acknowledged women's role in the life of society and religious and laws of the family. Yeah. So that was very eye-opening to me. Mom, is this your favorite Tolstoy book? It is my favorite Tolstoy book. Have you read War and Peace? <laughs> Do you remember the time we went, you dragged me to the opera version of War and Peace, and we stayed at the Met for about 12 days waiting for it to finish because it was so very long? It is. And to tell the truth, I've been fascinating how Anna Karenina led to a lot of filmmakers or choreographers or composers or very famous art people, you know, to create uh, their interpretation of it. There is a story of federal attraction or federal love or fate of uh, societal limits on love um, or women in love. So this is such a universal story. I know people are going to be hooked when they start to read it. Okay, Mommy. Thank you so much for that book recommendation. Can you tell us the name of the book again and the writer? Sure. It's Count Lev Tolstoy. And the name of the novel is Anna Karenina. And in translations, so they're available in many different kinds of translations, but my favorite is probably the first one ever. But I, I'm a lucky one who read that in Russian. So still, there are lots of great translations out there. So I would love our women, you know, to take it and read it and be fascinated by Anna. That was... Dr. Elena Ocher, my mom, as a special book recommendation feature for our Mother's Day show. Thank you, mom, and thank you for that great recommendation. My pleasure. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ryan Holiday, author of Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. The views 
right that Peter Thiel, you know, he considered that taking out Gawker was like in the public interest and it was it was for good reason. Um, I, I guess it's hard to to square that away with the fact that there's so many sites like Gawker, mm-hmm. like TMZ, there's tons of trashy tabloids. So I wonder in some ways, to your opinion, is Gawker different in any way? than those other sites or as you were researching probably the history of gossip and tabloid sensationalism, how did Gawker fit in with that? Well, yeah, I mean, Teal calls it the most philanthropic thing that he's ever done, uh, which is pretty incredible. I mean, I that's mean, an incredible statement. I'm yeah. not yeah, saying it's, it's incredibly true, but incredibly it's incredible. delusional, state. yeah. So, I mean, it is interesting. So when, the, when they're leaking the tape to try to get leverage in these negotiations, TMZ gets a copy first, actually. And TMZ watches it and chooses not to run it, probably oh, because they looked at the sort of the legal the legal precedent there and, and didn't think it was worth doing. So they don't run it. So Gawker is different in the sense that they're the only site that ran it. But I think more generally, Teal's objection is not so much to celebrity gossip. Like he's not objecting to the triviality of it or the mind numbingness of it. He's objecting to the effect of a world in which there's no privacy. I, th- I think he objected more to the, weirdly, more to the snarkiness and the meanness that said, like, if you keep a secret, we're going to find it and embarrass you for it. If you mm-hmm. have weird political beliefs, we're going to make fun of you for it. I think he saw it as this sort of homogenizing. It, you wouldn't think political correctness and Gawker in the same sentence, but I think with his more expansive definition of political correctness, he kind of saw it as this enforcer of, like, don't be different, don't be unusual, don't put your head up or we're going to get you. And I think that is really why he saw them as different. But I agree. I I don't think Gawker was sort of singularly bad. I think Gawker and Breitbart are sort of two sides of the same coin of just a vicious, manipulative. Wait, uh, come on. (laughs) I mean, Breitbart like peddles lies. I mean that that's there's a there's a way in which that that's not exactly true because Breitbart does like fabricate or dress up like they were look like Gawker was reporting things and particularly the teal outing was crude and terrible and you know and like what was the headline it was like Peter Teal is so totally gay it's yeah. like you know it's like juvenile and whatever but it's not untrue and it's not like warping really your sense of who this person is or what the news story is. Well, that was also, did you in your reporting find that Gawker had fabricated lots of stories? Well, look, Gawker's slogan is today's gossip is tomorrow's Tomorrow's news. news, So that's not lies, but it is a a sort of an expansive definition of like what's true and not true, right? So like, I think there's, there's part of that, but I'm comparing them more in the sort of acting often in bad faith, right? Sort of abusing mm, okay, a, okay. abusing what most people think of as journalism or reporting and sort of blurring the lines there and, and, and being willing to sort of not feel that as an outlet you have a particular responsibility from the power yes. that you have. Yeah. So I agree. I would say Breitbart is in the sort of outright propaganda ca- category. Right, right, right. And right. Gawker is, is more has different societal issues. But- I would say it, it is strange that he sort of singularly decides on this outlet. Um, but one of the things I speculate in the book is like, what if in 2000, like for the people who are so upset that this media outlet no longer exists and the precedent that's supposedly set here, well, what if 
you know, Shirley Sherrod had a very good libel case against Breitbart in, in 2011 when mm. they run the sort of deliberately edited video that implies that she was some sort of racist and then she loses her job right. and then she gets rehired. But like, what if a liberal billionaire had funded that case because he believed that like Breitbart was this sort of plague on culture? Sure. I think a lot of people that are very upset by this would be willing to think about it differently. And so what I've tried to do in the book is step back and go, Okay, this isn't what I think. This is Teal's logic. You know, Teal thought this, and this is why he did X, and this is how he was able to do it. And then we can sort of step back and we can judge it from there. But let's deal with the facts first, rather than just sort of saying this was a plutocratic billionaire, you know, settling a score. I think it was more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, there are other questions, though, that it asks about our contemporary media environment, right? Which is that if we kind of zoom out further and and not attend really to the nuances of this fascinating case, <laughs> of course, you have an incredibly wealthy and by virtue of wealth and other connections, powerful guy, mm-hmm. and then a kind of free press or media entity that then this one person can unilaterally and brilliantly also um, by playing it against itself sink, right? And I I saw this, I remember when when the story broke that Gawker was effectively bankrupted by the lawsuit, um, you saw a variety of different reactions. Many, and I'm maybe a little embarrassed to say my own, was like, well, you know what? They did this thing with the CFO and you know, shame on them and they shouldn't have published this and all that kind of stuff. They become something terrible. And then I would hear from others who were like, Eric, you can't talk this way. Like, you believe in a free press. Like, do you really think that this is, sure, this case was bad, but what do you think about, you know, just the larger trend of, like, some really wealthy guy being able to just destroy, like, a voice? But, and to complicate it further still, what's interesting is this case that Hulk Hogan won, because it was fundamentally in that Florida courtroom. It's just about this one sex tape. That this tape that Hulk Hogan won, Teal would say later in an interview, he said, you know, Hogan was only a single-digit millionaire and therefore could have never litigated this case by himself. You know, the legal bills in this case are 10-plus million dollars. There's no way Hogan could have won the case he won won without Teal's help, which is pretty incredible. So I think – so on the one hand, it's the power – the most obvious view is this is an indication of the power of wealth and it's scary. On the other hand, we should look at – this is the power of the, the media has power, right? They have an incredible amount of power. And in this case, this singular outlet was abusing that power to such a degree that they would publish things often because they knew expressly that no one could actually hold them accountable like for those because things. Because he couldn't afford to fight it. No in one court, could afford yeah. not, not only could no one afford to fight it, but no one would reasonably fight it because it was like you never go to war with the media outlet because they. It's a losing game. It's a losing game. Because they have the protection of the First Amendment. No, no, no. Because they (laughs) They have the power of the published book. They can just write about you over and over and over again. So, like, if you're, let's say the media says, write something about some embarrassing incident in your your past, and and they they do so very inaccurately, are you going to dredge that up for the next four years? That would be insane. Yeah. And and so, what was alarming when you read the trial documents is, you know, they would would go to the Gawker Report. So, did you do any research before you published this story? No. Did you know it would hurt uh, uh, the feelings of the person you're writing about? Yes. Did you decide that you should contact him in any way? When you got this cease and desist, why did you ignore it? So, so it's, it, I think the other side of it is that Gawker started as this underdog and grew more and more powerful. And they never kind of updated, like they would try, the, 
Hogan's lawyers tried to get them. What are your standards? Like, how did you know, mm. like, this story was inside your standards versus outside your st- And they weren't able to go like, well, here's our code of yeah. God. Yeah. Because they were still sort of operating as if they were this blog in someone's basement. And they weren't. They were an outlet that did billions of pages every right. year. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that the the website that I thought of in relation to Gawker, in kind of the both good and bad ways, WikiLeaks. Yes. Right? And this idea of ultimate transparency, but then not without an editor, you know, deciding what is appropriate or having any, you know, basis of why you would publish something that it becomes, it can become a beast of its own. That's a great parallel because, and and also it starts out with what seemed like very well and good intentions. Right. And then it becomes this thing and then you kind of can't, you, you've put out all this rhetoric and I think that was actually Gawker's problem. They put out all this, we publish the things that other people won't publish. We never retract story. And so when they crossed the line in the Connie Nast example, yeah. and the editor of Gawker, unpub- this is the first time they've ever unpublished a story, basically. Uh, yeah. wow. And then there's a massive walkout. Like, multiple editors resign in defense of this Over story. Yeah. And it's a similar thing with WikiLeaks, where it's like, no one in WikiLeaks is like, hey, guys, maybe we're doing this Russia thing. Like, maybe it's a little sketchy, <laughs> well, you know? I mean, and it's, you, yeah. you don't stay in WikiLeaks. Yeah. It's a you bad, know? but yeah. it is also, and I was thinking, you know, when we're talking about your book is themed around the idea of, as opposed to gossip, revenge, it's conspiracy, conspiracy. So, in you know, in, with WikiLeaks, I mean, sure. at this point, and it's also interesting in light of the election, I mean, WikiLeaks seems like it's a part of an international conspiracy at this point, and who knows. Gawker, a little bit less because it, it does still, I think, retain the idea of, you know, the, the check on power, yeah. even if it can be incredibly vulgar. But it's more in the mode of probably gossip and journalism, muck, even a kind of not muckraking is even yeah. too high a it's moniker like a for what they do. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it, it's just more in a classic tabloid fodder that takes that can take down the powerful and, yeah. um, well, no, in, in this, a different way. But. In this case, Gawker was undoubtedly the victim of the conspiracy rather than a participant. Yeah. In no, the conspiracy. I, I yeah. yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, how did your so you're reporting this book after the election for, yeah. for the most part? How did what happened in 2016 and Peter Thiel's support of Donald Trump? As the story. first gay Republican <laughs> on the on the and, RNC uh, stage, and, right? and, and again, yeah. I mean, I think that goes to the idea of like, oh, that me being gay is much lower on my identity, and that's why I'm able. That's why I, you know I'm sort of political first, gay second is probably where Teal was coming from on that, which is interesting. Mm. But I mean, I, I almost wish the Trump thing hadn't happened, not just because I have to live in America now, but <laughs> but I, I it so complicates what would have been a much sort of clearer story, right? Because now it's this, if Gawker, if Teal's unmasking sort of complicates the Hogan narrative, then the Teal backing Trump complicates that narrative even more because now it's like, who's the good guy? It sort of casts this ominous shadow. I mean, I was interviewing him as he was sort of backing Trump and think, I don't know. I think one of the things he told me was that he believed that what he sort of learned in that Florida courtroom, sort of it being this sort of battle against the media elites, sort of the media massively missing what the public's actual reaction to a lot of this stuff was going to be, I think that sort of confirmed for him that Trump was more viable of a candidate than than most of us thought. Mm, mm. Not So not an ideological point, but he was like, oh, I think he had a different read on the situation that the rest of us, you know, watching CNN 
didn't have. Right, right. I, you, uh, as we kind of like start to wrap up here, I'm wondering, in the course of your research and all the interviews that you did um, for this book, was there anything that really just gobsmacked you? Well, just the idea that there was this Mr. A character who had put the whole series <laughs> of things yeah. that, that this thing that had been so maybe even over-reported that not only did people not know his name, but nobody even knew that like an entire main character in the story, they didn't even know he existed. And I didn't know he existed until yeah. I began. So it was weird that it was like, so first we were surface level, then it turns out there was more to the story, then it turns out there was more to that story, and we've just... We get distracted by salacious things and we don't figure out what's really going on. Well, okay. So just to look at contemporary politics yeah. right now, because I, I, I am interested you know, in thinking about, for example, you brought up earlier Stormy Daniels. Yeah. And we also have, who's the other one? Karen Douglas, I yeah, think the, is the other the one. the playmate. Mick um, Douglas? Mick Douglas. Thank you, Karen McDougal. I don't, maybe I'm Karen McDougal. 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 One of them. Sure. Something like yeah. that. Sure. You know, in these cases, you could say, there's a way that you could say, look, 10 years ago, happened forever ago. Um, why do we really need to know? Sure. Same thing with the stuff. Uh, Steel dossier is a little bit different because there are more salacious things that we, they're salacious, oh, but they're connected to, to that, but yeah. yeah, but there's connected to like real hard things. But you could also say that it's like, well, he's going to all this effort to cover something up. Sure. And this means that while maybe I don't care about his sexual life, I do care about his susceptibility to blackmail yeah, or to, to some other kinds of things. So is there also a kind of public value to having even these stories that are kind of dirty and crass and whatever to having them out there? Well, it gets even more complicated because now Charles Harder, he's Hogan's lawyer, against Gawker is now Trump's attorney. Uh, um, so it gets, Oh, I didn't know right, that. Yes. Yeah. But well, he, can well, join, he, he can join the zoo crew. Well, that's he, there worked right from, now. he was yeah. the one who represented Melania in, in her defamation case against the Daily Mail, which she won. So, oh. and that's why, and that's why I just wonder, maybe you could talk about the precedent yeah. that, that this case is set and going forward, how afraid we should all be of, well, of the free ca- press being threatened. In that case, I think it was probably good that she won. I mean, the, the Daily Mail wrong, wrongly implied that she was a prostitute, which is right. not great. Yeah. Uh, but, but the Stormy Daniels thing is interesting because, okay, so while I would say it's, it's even a celebrity has a right to privacy in a bedroom, even when they're having sex with their their best friend's wife, right? To me, that's the, that is clearly on the other side of the line. That being said, what if there was a surreptitiously recorded uh, a, a tape of the Stormy Daniels Trump encounter? Now, is is that mm. fair game? Yeah. Um, well, clearly, writing about it absolutely would be. Does the video footage or Should if it there be was published, if yeah. there was video if there was a still photo of Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton it, I think at a certain point politicians and public servants as I think public are, figures I yeah. think are should have much less of an expectation of privacy than a celebrity would be in a private bedroom but it I I agree there's there are a lot of questions that this this whole thing just sort of hangs there and I think part of why I wrote the book is that we've been sort of glibly pretending that we have all the answers to some of the questions and then ignoring more important questions. And the, I think the whole, the whole thing just sort of needs to be put out there and thought about because it, it does raise from gay identity issues to where the right to privacy is towards the future of the free press towards the, you know, the nature of power. These are all big questions. How much do you think that these questions that are coming up and, they, and they're beautifully explored in the oh, book. I, I did really like it. It's a, it's a great read. 
Do you think that some of this is a transition from legacy media to so kind of traditional print television to new media? I mean, which is what Gawker yeah. is. There is a way in which so when you're saying that it's like, OK, well, what if that tape is available? Should we run it? That kind of would just be a newsroom question, yeah. right? But now that you have something that can go out and people can share it, right? So before I might have been able to see it on CNN and maybe I taped it and then I sent it to a friend. But like now it's the distributability. I mean, what it, effectively this question is about, are we entering a new age of media ethics where we need yeah. to ask different and more complex questions about disclosure, reporting, writing versus providing people with the raw materials. Well, you brought up the Steele dossier. And so BuzzFeed runs it. And I actually asked Nick if he would run it. And he said, I don't know if I would have. But, but Wait, why did did he give you a justification for why not? Because he's not sure if he, I think he felt I, not sure if the public would receive it with the kind of skepticism that a newsroom would. Does that make that your average person sees something, they have trouble going this part, that, like the idea of something not being completely true or completely false is I think harder and harder for people to wrap their heads around these days. Around question of motivation. You yeah, mean, and yeah, the, yeah. And then, then that's in some ways the job of the media is to sift fact from fiction, not to go, here's a bunch of fact and fiction. Let's, have you sorted out? Just Do you know so what I mean? It's so ironic, though, because isn't Denton's so, mistake was exactly exa what you were saying earlier? But which I think is he like learned thinking th about it. Yeah, and and I so when you're saying transition from legacy, you yeah. know, I think it's weird. We might be. It, you could argue might we were going in another direction in that, like, mm -hmm. you know, so Gawker goes away, and we're we're afraid that that's going to you know a chilling effect. People aren't going to speak truth to power. But since then. The entire Me Too movement, you know, the Harvey Weinstein stories, the New York Times, the Washington Post have broken many, many powerful stories about Trump. But they have a different weight when they come from the New York Times or the Washington Post. And, and maybe people are starting to appreciate that distinction more and more. Mm -hmm. I, I hope so. I hope so, too. Uh -huh. All right. Well, we'll have to end it there. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. We've been speaking with Ryan Holiday author of Conspiracy, Peter Thiel, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Anatomy of Intrigue. Thank you so much for joining Thanks us. For Thanks for having me. So as part of our very special segment where we interview mothers for Mother's Day and get some book recommendations from our moms, we want to talk to Kate's mom, Kate Wolf's mom, Jamie Wolf. But Jamie was unavailable. She was out of town. I'm a big fan of Jamie's, and hopefully we can get her on the show at another time because Jamie's really great. I'm sure she has a great book recommendation. But we realized that Kate, our co-host, is actually a recent mom. And so we have asked Kate to do the recommendation herself. Kate, what book are you going to recommend? Well, this was a hard one for me because I'm in that in-between space where I'm not really reading that many wonderful children's books yet. And I didn't read a ton of pregnancy books either. But I want to talk about one I did read, which is a new classic. It's called Ina May's Guide to Childbirth. Okay. And Ina May Gaskin, you know, she is the quintessential midwife. People might be familiar with her book from the 70s, Spiritual Midwifery. Okay. Classic. I didn't read that one. I read The Guide to Childbirth. And the amazing thing about it are the stories of childbirth in the book. There are lots of people writing their stories. And lots of times they can't get the baby out. And then Ina May has an intuition. She says, Oh, are you afraid of having a child? 
and during the these during are labor, lo- long in labor. protracted labors that, okay. that don't they stall right and there's some kind of revelation that she's able to bring out or she has a clever idea like oh maybe i'll ask her to sing mm-hmm. and suddenly out pops the baby oh my gosh it's like labor mysteries yeah they have like a freudian element to me okay. i mean it seems like they're almost too perfect but they're so funny and amazing and reading them i was really really excited to give birth Really? This, oh, yeah. They, they made it sound like, hey, no problem. Just think about what your blocks are, have someone help you face them, and bam, right. you're going to get a baby. Did it go that way? No. Oh, no. Not at all. How did it go, if you um, don't mind my asking? It was long. Too bad that I didn't have Ina May helping me because I must have had a mental block because my child was so late. Oh, how late was he? Two weeks late. And so I had to be induced. Oh. And it still took a long time. So okay. maybe I wasn't really ready for a baby. Anyways. Do you I, think the book was misleading a little bit in terms so of I, how? Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have recommended it, but the stories <laughs> are amazing. And, and I came to think of it in some ways as a, as a type of fiction. Oh. In a way. I mean, mm-hmm. in a way that maybe can be helpful. Right. For thinking about mind-body connections, because my whole birth experience made me think a lot about, as someone who believes in psychology, believes in the power of the mind, now I, I look a little bit more skeptically at it, because oh, I'm not sure, because what is the connection between mind and body? Is it as neat as it comes out in Ina May Gaskin's Guide to Childbirth? I don't know. It seems like there's some mysteries that aren't addressed there, but it's all great material to think about when you are trying to get a baby outside and you're afraid you're not going to be able to. That is a perfect Mother's Day recommendation, I think. Yes. Kate, will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? It's Ina McGaskin is the author and it's Guide to Childbirth. Thank you so much and congrats. Thanks. Happy Mother's Day. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution. And the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. 
Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.